Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McLenaghan and in this episode I'm joined by Alison Humes, National Director of Basel Cymru, Alison Babbage, National Director of the Scottish Association of Social Workers and Kerry Prince, Basel's Public and Political Affairs Lead. We met in the aftermath of the elections for the Scottish Parliament, Welsh Senate, English local councils and elected mayors to discuss the issues raised by Baswa with candidates prior to the election and what the results will mean for social workers, the people who use social work services and society more widely. If you'd like to get in touch with us about this or any of our other episodes, please email ltsw at baw.co.uk. Alison, Alison and Kerry, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you all feeling? First of all, Alison Babbage in Scotland, how are you feeling? Well, very energised, I suppose, after the um, excitement of all those elections last week um, and getting ready and the team getting ready to see what comes next. Fantastic. Alison Humes, how are you feeling? I'm feeling really good, thank you. Yes, and I think like um, Ali up in Scotland, feeling really energised and looking forward to setting up meetings with our new MSs. Fantastic. And sorry, I should have said Alison Humes is in Wales. Swansea, Alison, isn't that right? I'm in Swansea, that's right, yeah. And Alison Babbage, you're in? Edinburgh. Very good. Kerry, Kerry, uh, long time uh, contributor to Let's Talk Social Work. Welcome back. How are you doing? Hi, good, thanks. Nice to be back. Welcome. And you're in London, yes? I am in London, yes. Okay. Sunny at the moment. Sunny, good, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm in Belfast um, and it is sunny um, for what it's worth. So thank you. Thank you everyone for joining for this. I'm really looking forward to this episode, um, exploring um, what the election results in Scotland, Wales and England are going to mean. We, we're going to be looking at basically who is going to be making decisions for the next number of years um, and what that's going to mean for social work. So, Alison, you mentioned uh, you were excited, uh, energised by the election results. Good results for the SNP. I think the important thing here is that there wasn't a massive change. Um, And I think that's the thing to take from it. You know, the SNP fell just short of a majority um, in terms of the total number of seats. Um, The... um, uh, the the vote share was fairly similar to the um, last election. There's there's no huge great changes. Um, you know what has happened is the SNP has um, increased their number in the chamber. Labour have lost a couple. Lib Dems lost one, and the Greens have done quite well in gaining an extra twenty five percent, an extra two seats on what they had previously. And that's SNP's fourth term in government, isn't it? So it's a sort of yes. feels to a certain extent business as usual. Alison, very strong showing for Labour in Wales. Have they done better than was expected? They have, yes. Yeah, they really have. Um, they've they've got 30 of 60 seats, which is, again, just, just one short of a majority. Um, but I, I think generally there was the perception that that this was you know going to be a more difficult election for them. Of course, Labour have been in government ever since you know we've had devolution, so that's the twenty that, you know that that's the last twenty years. But you know again, I think you know echoing what Ali said, there's something about you know that 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 sense of of, of continuity um, and and. The Welsh public, you know, I think have said very loudly and very clearly that they've trusted Welsh government, particularly during, you know, their handling of the pandemic. And it is significant, and we can maybe get into this a little bit later, neither the the Scottish or Welsh electoral systems are designed to deliver majority governments. So it's very, very significant that Wales were on the cusp, just on the cusp of a a, a majority, as were the SNP. If we move on to Kerry, um, there's a lot to cover in relation to England in terms of local council elections. Kerry, there were some big wins for the Conservative Party. There were some big losses for Labour. Can you talk me through those changes? Yep. So the 
the main focus, I suppose, of Thursday, last Thursday, election day, was Hartlepool. So there was a by-election because the incumbent Labour MP, Mike Hill, resigned and this created a vacancy. Um, so this was always going to be closely fought between Labour and the Conservatives, um, both sides confident, but the closer it got to polling day, it was quite clear the Conservatives were, in head, were ahead. Um, this attracted a lot of, because Hartlepool is a seat in the in the so-called Red Wall, so this attracted a lot of criticism that Labour was heading in the wrong direction, that the Conservatives are becoming the party of the north of England. Um, but I think what was, what was ignored was how well the Labour Party did in the south of England, which would traditionally be a, a Conservative stronghold. Um, so Sadiq Khan was re-elected as Mayor of London, Marvin Rees was re-elected as Mayor of Bristol, Labour took West of England Mayor from the Conservatives, Labour took Cambridge Brashear and Peterborough mayor from the Conservatives, but then police and crime commissioner elections across England saw a swing to the Conservatives. It is a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. I don't think any true trend can be taken from what happened in England on Thursday. I think the public aren't sure who they're supporting. Um, so they might have voted the same way as they did last time. They might have voted for a change. But to be honest, I, I can see no clear trend. Thanks, Kerry. And just coming back to devolution, I imagine most of our listeners have a, you know, probably have a good understanding of how devolution works. But just to be sure and to set some context for what we'll, we'll be discussing later on, although there is some variation between the powers devolved from Westminster to the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Senate and the Northern Ireland Assembly, crucially, powers concerning the planning and the delivery of social work services are fully devolved to Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Scotland also has significant control over social security, as does Northern Ireland, which is relevant to some of the points we'll discuss later on. The system for electing members to the Senate and the Scottish Parliament, that may be unfamiliar to anyone who hasn't taken part. The elections use the additional member system, and I think the only other body in the UK that's elected this way is the London Assembly. Could somebody offer an explanation of how that system works? Well, firstly, um, there's two elements in Scotland. There's the constituency vote and there is the list vote. The constituency vote is a simple first-past-the-post, okay? And that is 73 of the, um, the MSPs, 129, are elected that way. The rest... Um, which is 56. Um, Scotland is divided into seven regions and then there are eight members for each region um, and they are elected through the additional list system. Now, the additional list system, um, uh, once you've had the... It, it depends. The more seats you have, the less likely you are to get more seats with the, cal- the way that the calculation works. It's based on the de Hunt principle? The de Hunt principle, um, yes. Belgian mathematician, apparently. So that's kind of an interesting um, um, kind of aspect of it. And it is specifically designed, as you said before, Andy, to make sure that um, the likelihood of an outright majority um, doesn't happen. To put the, what the SNP did in context last week, if that had been a Westminster election and, and the, the seats were counted for the Westminster election, the SNP won 80, 80%, over 80% of the constituency vote. So that would have been over 500 people in an SNP in the inner Westminster Parliament. So I think, you know, not to underestimate, there's been a lot of press around Nicola Failed. Well, I haven't seen that press. That's interesting because nationally it was all the SNP, you know, praising their performance. Is, is Scottish media hasn't had that, that um, approach. Is that right? Well, I think it, it's been, a, there was a bit about the, um, it was an expected result um, and it was expected that the um, that there wouldn't be a complete majority, and that we'd be into a, a system of either soft or formal coalition. You know, and in Scotland, usually that's fairly fairly soft and goes um, in terms of who the um, party in government leads with, um, in terms of what the issue is that um, we're working on. And I guess you know the idea is if that brings together a political consensus. And just in a wee bit more in terms of setting the context, it would be really good to understand uh, when you're lobbying uh, at, at Holyrood and, and when Alison's lobbying um, in, in Cardiff, in terms of where social work responsibility sits, in terms of cabinet secretaries and, and ministries, um, Alison Humes, when you're lobbying in the Senate, who, who are the ministers that you are engaging with? So um, in terms of ministers, our, our primary sort of minister is Vaughan Gethin, 
who is the Minister for Health and Social Services. Okay. And and in Scotland, Alison, when I was looking at the Scottish Government and the various portfolios, it looked like things were spread out a little bit further. Is that correct? Um, yes, it is. It's really across um, um, three cabinet secretary roles. So we have um, health and social care. Um, we have um, skills and education, which um, brings in the Minister for Children and Young People, which is where the children's element of social work sits. But then, of course, in Scotland, we don't have a probation service. Our justice services are run by social workers within um, local authorities, um, delivering reports to the court, working in prisons um, and delivering community, result, um, community sentences. Um, and so we, would, we also have connection with the Cabinet Secretary for Justice. So quite a diverse portfolio to deal mm-hmm. with. Alison, the big issue, before we move on to talking about the content of the manifestos in England, Scotland and Wales, a big issue for Scotland, of course, or the big issue for Scotland, of course, is the debate concerning independence. The SNP, we know, didn't achieve an outright majority. They fell just short. They won 64 seats in the Scottish Parliament. But as you mentioned at the start, the number of Green MSPs, there are now eight and they're pro-independence. So that gives an overall majority in uh, the Scottish Parliament um, for independence. Are conversations about independence ongoing within the social work sector? You know, are discussions being held about what the impacts of independence could be for the profession? Everybody in Scotland talk, is talking about independence one way or another. And uh, it's um, an, kind of an all-consuming um, discussion in, in some places. Um, families, members disagree and will fall out about it. Um, it does have the potential for being quite divisive. The, um, the share of the electoral vote that went to pro-independence parties was a, is around 50%, slightly over on one of the votes and slightly under on, on the other vote. Um, so we are a country with um, who, in this election, and just supposing that we were voting around the independence issue, that looks like we are pretty much straight down the middle. In terms of where this leaves social work is... Um, it's very difficult to say in terms of um, there, there is not a social work view on independence. Um, social workers are individuals who live in families and communities who um, will um, have, have their own views um, about whether independence is um, uh, either a di- distraction from coming through the, the pandemic, which, of course, the unionist parties um, have, have focused on, um, or whether it, it, it is a means to secure um, more local democracy from the pro-independent side. So I would think we, in social work, we are no different than the rest of the population. Thanks. And Alison Humes, in relation to, to Wales, situation, I mean, obviously there is an independence movement in Wales as well. Plaid Cymru, I believe, lost seats. Um, are those conversations happening within the profession in Wales or is it less of a hot topic? Again, they're, they're not... I, very much like Scotland, you know, social workers, you know, are in families and communities and in those families and communities, you know, they'll be having, you know, their own conversations, but it's not a conversation that's happening across the profession. And I think it's really, I think there is a, a, a connection with um, Labour being the ruling party for the last 20 years and they they they, they clearly do not support um, independence, um, Welsh Labour government um, is a supporter of, of increased devolution powers, and that's I think where they're going to focus their energy. So there may be some 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 connection there to there not being a wider sort of discussion about independence, and, and you know particularly in 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 social work, the focus is on um, I think increasing you know devolution powers. But what's interesting, I don't know how many of those social workers have become members of of Yes Cymru, which is the pro independence party, which is you know increased its its um, membership hugely during the time of the pandemic so you know in um january 2020 they had 2500 members and now they've got 15000 which is is more than i think you know most of the 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 political parties in wales thanks alison um and i want to move on to talk about the content of the manifestos we have three jurisdictions 
There were multiple elections and there are three manifestos. And I think that what's really interesting is that as one profession, there are several clear themes that cross-cut the manifestos. But one of the fantastic things about devolution is the ability to tailor policies and progress specific issues in particular countries. So for conversation, I'm, I'm going to explore the common themes and then move on to discuss the issues I consider to be the standout asks from each manifesto. So if we start with the common themes, the common themes at least as I see them, the first one is workforce issues. Basil Kumri outlined seven key asks in its manifesto. The first of these was a call for an independent review of social work in Wales. The manifesto flags up a range of issues, including working conditions, vacancy rates, and issues concerning career progression, among, among others. Alison, can you please talk me through why this review is so urgently needed and what changes you hope it would lead to the Welsh Government making? Yes, yeah, no, thank you, Andy. So, I mean, our, our, our manifesto call around workforce was based on the research that was uh, undertaken jointly between uh, Basel, Social Work Union and Bath Spa, and, and, you know, particularly the findings in Wales, which were, you know... <laughs> Social workers, you know, knew that working conditions were, were were difficult. They spoke about them, but having the actual research, the empirical data to back it up, you know, was really significant and provided, you know, really important data on which we could base our our, our this particular ask in the manifesto. I mean, we know that, you know, in 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 terms of the research that came out, we, it 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 showed us that working conditions for social workers in Wales are as bad, if not worse, than you know elsewhere in the UK. Uh, we have, you know. Um, significant vacancy gaps across all all service areas and of course you know one of the 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 key issues that we do not talk about is the fact that it's a feminized profession in Wales it's an aging feminized profession and we simply don't don't talk about what the specific needs of that demographic of workforce is and I think that's become more you know more heightened during the the pandemic because of you know the significant caring responsibilities that that this workforce has had to undertake either end of the caring spectrum whilst trying to undertake really complex um, work from home. It's one of the things I would like to explore this in a future episode, but the fact that the social work workforce is so disproportionately female and it's seen by so many as a, you know, a feminine role. I can't think of many jobs that are tougher, that you need to have more resilience to be in. And I don't understand why that doesn't read across into more guys thinking social work is a job for them. Um, well, it's interesting, yes, in Scotland, um, over 80% of the social work and the social care workforce are women, and um, without doubt. The areas where um, it becomes um, more even in terms of gender is residential childcare and justice social work. So that's just, just a point of interest. Thanks. I think that's really helpful. Um, in relation to the workforce issues, um, in, in relation to Basel's manifesto for the English local government elections, Kerry, it highlights how the pressures of the pandemic and the complexities of lockdown have had significant impacts on many people across society. And this will have consequences both on a personal level and professionally as social work caseloads increase. Baz was asked politicians to ensure that well-being of staff is a core consideration in policy development. Kerry, do you think that this call is going to be heard? Um, partially, perhaps. Um, the, the fallout from COVID may bring the work that social workers do um, to, the, to, to, to a wider public discussion. And we are trying to get the understanding there about what it is that social workers do. But a lot of people, the public and politicians, don't fully understand what it is that social workers do, what problems they face, their caseloads. Um, and often it's brushed onto local authorities, but local authorities don't always have the power to to, to provide the resources and, and funding needed to relieve the pressures. So I think it's, it's a circular argument. I'm not convinced anything will get done. Well, that leads me on actually to the next theme, and that, that is the recognition of social work. So the England Manifesto, uh, it also sought to draw attention to the complex and varied roles that social workers perform. And it asked that politicians work to understand just what it is that social workers do and to recognise their contribution. As, you, as you've said. Basil Kumri uh, called for social work to be inducted and integrated into emergency planning arrangements at local and community levels. And Saswa has highlighted the need to involve the social work profession at all levels in all reviews and developments of social services in Scotland. You know, this all points to a lack of recognition of the vital contribution made by social work. 
I'll go around one by one, but what do you think needs to change to ensure social work is given the prominence it deserves in, in service planning and decision making? I'll, I'll go to Alison Humes first. I think, I think one of the things that needs to happen is we need to understand just, you know, how broad the the professional knowledge and skills of social workers are. I, I think what's happened, particularly in Wales during the last 10 years, uh, it's been happening longer, but but I think it's been accelerated in the last 10 years, is, is social work has become, you know, funneled into a high-end, you know, safeguarding role. And and I think some of the campaigning that we've been doing is 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 to to understand and why we want an independent review of social work to really um, explore, you know, all of the roles that social workers really should be in. Our role in primary care, you know, our roles, our role in the community, particularly when we're thinking about building back better. So, so there's something that's it's a process that's been happening. You know, I think over the last, particularly over the last decade, where you know social work now is mostly, I think, associated with with you know with with protection and safeguarding, but not with not not with um, you know prevention and support. Um, I'd absolutely echo what what um Alison just said um and I, I think a big part of recognition comes down to oh the challenge for organizations such as as, as Baswar is not to um operate on the idea that everybody knows what a social worker is and does if you've had a social worker or you're or you perhaps um come across them in in your work that's probably the only way you're going to know what it is that they do every day and what 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 is it realistically that that can be done to 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 improve this recognition? I suppose on the, on the very basic of it, if we want recognition from a policy and a politics perspective, it's to work with politicians to effectively communicate what it is that we do and why it's so important. You'll hear um, politicians get up and talk about poverty or justice issues, and they might not realise the role of the social worker in that. Anything societal, um, and that that's that's the challenge for the profession. And just on that, I know that as part of SASWA's manifesto, you've spoken about setting up, uh, forgive me, I know the terminology is not right, but an all-party group is what it would be called in Northern Ireland at, at the Northern Ireland Assembly, an all-party group in social work. That's not the terminology, correct me, Alison, as to what it is. It's a cross, cross-party group. Cross-party group. So Baswa UK have had the all-party parliamentary group on social work at Westminster for many years now. That's been really useful, as I understand, in terms of raising awareness um, among um, elected representatives. So that's that's a useful step for for SASWA to be taken taken ahead. Um, it, it certainly is, and um, we'll be pursuing um, the politicians who said that they would sponsor that and support us in that um, in the next few weeks, so they can expect to hear from us. Um, I think it was interesting what um, Kerry and Alan Wales were, were saying, you know, this thing about um, social work not being a universal service and therefore it's kind of not being well understood. I mean, I think it goes even deeper than that. And I think that as part of particularly health and social care integration, which is, you know, the political direction um, in Scotland, in the UK and, and in Europe, is that we have become expected to behave more and more in a health kind of way. And that becomes really tricky because um, we are not task focused and we mustn't be task focused. We are relationship based. We are there to support people going through challenging and difficult times. It's a transitions piece of work. It's joining the dots. It's being curious. Um, I think um, it's quite interesting. Um, Al was talking there around um, how because of resources, we've lost some of the key things that we used to do. You know, the fact that um, trauma, if you like, and ACEs seem to have become um, something that, again, the, the, the risks around that. It's great that more and more people know about it and are taking um, an understanding from it. But it's the translation of what we know about that into the um, dynamics of power and marginalisation and um, what happens to people. Why is it? that the huge majority of people who come through the social work door are living in poverty, you know. Um, so we are an active, or we are politically active profession, but we are being shoehorned perhaps into arenas that are, that think that is us being difficult. 
And, and Alison, that's that's the point I actually wanted to move on to and the theme that I'd identified across the manifestos is co-production. So Salzer's manifesto, it brings a focus to the importance of talking to people with lived experience of poverty and involving them in policy development to better understand the hardships they face um, so that uh, more effective solutions can be delivered both nationally and locally. The England manifesto, it focuses on putting people with lived experience at the heart of decision making. Um, and I know we hear tons about co-production in terms of policy and service development, how and it can work really well, but far too often it's simply a box-ticking exercise. How far short are policymakers currently falling in terms of recognising the need to put service users at the centre of shaping services? I think we need to do better. All of us need to do better. We need to do better on the ground. We need to do better in the kind of local authority and local politics arena and certainly better in the national field. I think that we have various mechanisms uh, but the, the risk is that there are a, a very few number of people who have really lived experience and have the um, ability, capacity, time to be able to contribute to this. Um, and we still expect them kind of to come to us. And I think it's really important that we turn that on its head. And I'm afraid I don't really see. We asked um, politicians to involve people specifically with lived experience of poverty because we are not convinced that that is a voice that is well heard. And poverty, it's a key theme that runs through the various manifestos. So in addressing the need to tackle the causes of social work crisis intervention, the England Manifesto notes that poverty can often be a significant factor leading to social work intervention. It's also a root cause of homelessness, which can lead to, to worsening mental and physical health problems. Kerry, what can be done at local level in terms of the local councils in England to alleviate poverty? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a challenge, really, and it comes back to something I said earlier about where responsibility lies. So whilst the UK Parliament will say, well, um, issues such as social work are devolved to, to local authorities, the local authorities would argue they don't get enough funding, enough support from national government to then be able to provide the, provide the services. So I think a big way to tackle poverty locally would be to ensure that local authorities had the resource and the funds to to develop projects and strategies that are relevant that, that are focused on their areas because they know that their areas better it's not a one one size fits all solution in some areas food bank use will be, be higher than others um, so i think ultimately it comes back down to down to to funding because local authorities are having cuts to their budgets and they then have to choose between prevention and and um reactive measures and the statutory ones are the reactive ones so um, severe mental illness homelessness um, family breakdown could all be prevented which can all contribute what well, can be caused by poverty and, and contribute towards poverty that could all be um, largely reduced if local authorities had the funds and the resource to 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 run these programs and to run these initiatives but the reality is they have to put the money in what they have to run and we're going to keep seeing this as a, as a circular, you know, issue. Yes. And th this issue, yeah, the issue of resourcing is, 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 is central also to an issue that was raised in the Basel Kumri Manifesto. So this was in relation to highlighting the need to reform and invest in social care funding. Uh, Basel Kumri stressed the pandemic is having an unequal impact on people in Wales, where I think the, the stat was nearly a quarter of the population live in poverty, in, including 44% of lone parent households. Alison Humes, what impact is this having on demand for social work services? And, and crucially, given the Welsh Government, just like the Northern Ireland Executive, given they lack tax raising powers and they have to operate within the block grant from Westminster, what can be done to reform and invest in social care funding in line with Basra Kumri's ask? I, I think when we, I think this goes back to 20 years of devolved government and why Welsh government, you know, had an ambition to eliminate child poverty by 2020. You know, that ambition clearly, you know, had to had to, had to be rethought. Um, and 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 we 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 sort of lobby and campaign Welsh government around poverty through groups like the All Wales um, Anti Poverty Coalition and also the um, Cross Party Group on Poverty. And one of the things that we've been calling for, so as well as as well as funding, there's something about leadership as well in, in, in Welsh government. So one of the things that, that we're, we're hoping could make a difference is if we had a minister who had a specific portfolio around poverty. Um, you know, at the minute, you know, we're, the, the settlement that we get from Westminster is what it is. It feels 
feels as if, you know, Welsh government, you know, has to have to operate with one hand tied behind its back and, and you know, make those, you know, very difficult decisions about where it allocates, you know, its resources. And we know that we had, they end up in those statutory areas, um, you know, where, where, where most risk is. So, um, you know, if we had a minister, I think, for, for poverty, instead of having it spread across, you know, lots and lots of different portfolios. And I think in terms of sort of accountability and leadership, that would be a, a step forward for us in Wales. Um, you know, in the absence of Welsh Government um, uh, commissioned a review, actually, of the funding of, of social care in 2018. And you know some of the the recommendations of that commission were around should should they should Welsh government look at imposing you know a social care levy and and should it or should it you know increase you know basic basic tax to to pay for funding so lots of conversations as you would imagine you know we have an aging demographic in Wales and and it's a, it's it's you know funding particularly of of, of you know adult social care is is a is a huge problem you know there are recommendations but as of yet no clear direction on on you know how that's going to be tackled. Thanks, Alison. And, and keeping still on this theme of poverty and coming back to Scotland, the, the SASWA manifesto calls for the Scottish government to commit to the policy of a citizen's basic income um, or another means of effective and dignified financial support um, to reduce poverty. What does poverty mean for children and families in Scotland, Alison? And what does the Scottish Parliament, I'm uh, sorry, and, and does the Scottish Parliament currently have sufficient control over social security to deliver this or would additional powers need to be devolved to, to create a citizen's basic income that's quite a long question and i might have to come back to you it is sorry i just realized that different questions in there um currently um scotland does have some control over social security and we've introduced two um new payments as a carers payment but more important for children and families there is the child poverty payment which is 10 pounds per week per child however many children there are in the family Okay, so that's one of the key differences, clearly, obviously brought in to counteract um, um, the um, UK um, government's position. This is the the two-child limit for universal credit. Exactly. Um, So all the parties, apart from the Conservatives in Scotland, have committed to um, some sort of universal basic income, Um, the four of the five main parties. So um, this begins to give us hope. We do also, of course, have some control. It's limited, but some control over our tax system. And currently, Scottish um, um, taxpayers pay um, additional kind of 1% at various levels, um, at the higher level. So um, uh, we already have some small mechanisms um, to um, adjust that. You asked about the impact on children and families. Um, and I think the, the impact is certainly clear and has been made more clear, of course, by the, the pandemic. Um, the, the impact on families and particularly, you know, many more families with a lone parent who is a woman, who during the pandemic has been put at more risk of um, financial stresses due to um, reduced hours or becoming redundant. Um, I think there's the, the pressure in itself that um, not having enough money to be able to have some options about how you um, you, you manage your family finances, uh, where it's constantly a struggle, where you're constantly concerned that the next bill, if the washing machine breaks or the fridge freezer breaks, that um, that you know you cannot um, cope with with that. You don't have any background savings at all, um, and as we've um, you know as we know, poverty being that that single most common gateway into social work services. Families that have resources find alternative ways. Thanks, Alison. Um, we're going to move on to the final common theme which runs through the various manifestos, and this is on values and ethics. Social work is a human rights-based profession, but the system that social workers operate in is often oppressive and it's often unequal. The lack of recognition of the impacts of structural racism by the UK government was highlighted by the recent SEAL report. And this is actually an issue we'll be exploring in detail in the next episode of Let's Talk Social Work. Alison, if we just stick with Scotland for the time being, SASWA has focused on the need to reject the principle of no recourse to public funds and ensure local authorities are funded to address the needs of all vulnerable people, whatever their immigration status. What are the barriers facing the delivery of this ask and, and how, how can the barriers be overcome? 
Um, immigration and the policy surrounding that are not devolved to the Scottish Parliament. Um, so they're retained by the UK, which of course over the last few years has um, pursued the what used to be called the hostile environment. Um, and of course, and, and Kerry may want to speak to this later in terms of the immigration um, um, work going through at, at the moment, um, which Baswa has some significant concerns with. Um, so that's our, that's our first barrier. What Scottish Government is doing around that is, um, um, is, is has a, an anti-destitution strategy, which um, focuses on destitution generally, but um, d- does draw attention to the no recourse to public funds issues. Um, Aileen Campbell, um, who was our Community Secretary last May, wrote to the UK government um, around um, the impact of the pandemic um, uh, and following the this ending destitution together strategy. So really calling, you know, um, for the UK government to um, um, kind of t- take account of the essential needs that people have, um, the advice and advocacy needs that people have, um, inclusion, rights to work. Um, and the Scottish Government has um, put an initial um, investment into this. It's a very short-term initial, just half a million at the moment, but looking particularly at children and families subject to uh, no recourse to public funds, older people and disabled people. Um, so, um, yes, so COSLA, which is our local authority organisation and Scottish Government, asked the UK to remove these um, no recourse to public funds conditions for the most vulnerable, um, to take the Scottish Welfare Fund out of the restricted public funds list um, and a couple of other things. So uh, there is work going forward in Scotland, but it kind of feels like we're finding a way around the UK rules rather than actually being able to address it directly ourselves. Thanks, Alison. And Kerry, if we move on to the manifesto for uh, the English elections, it asks that politicians promote, support and legislate for the embedding of anti-oppressive, anti-discriminatory and anti-racist values and ethics in all stages of education and learning, including nursery, primary, secondary and higher education. Basil Kumri has also called for anti-oppressive, anti-racist and cultural competence education to be made mandatory for all social workers throughout all stages of their careers. So just coming back to the same question that I asked Alison in relation to Scotland, what are the barriers facing the delivery of these asks and how can they be overcome? I think what is quite stark is that despite social workers and organisations such as such as Baswa calling for the um, a, uh, the introduction of, of taking an anti-racist approach to society. The problem is, is that we continue to face oppressive government legislation and government guidance coming in. You only need to look at the police crime and sentencing bill that's coming in and the way that they want to um, further discriminate against the uh, Gypsy Roma traveller community, which I'm sure um, Al will come on to talk about more. Um, and and the hostile environment that we're seeing with the immigration bill, that's the, that, well, the immigration consultation that is currently out, and how if you travel to the UK through what the government determines to be an illegal route, or you go you pass through what the UK government determines to be a safe country, your asylum claim will be deemed inadmissible. And so people are being criminalised before they even get here. People who are escaping persecution, war, famine are being criminalised just for wanting a better life. That's that's the opposite of, of anti-oppression. That's the opposite of an equal and just society. And as long as legislation and proposals from go- not just government, but but the, the way that we treat each other in society, with, there's, there's a word that a lot of people like to use, woke, and how it's, it's cool to not be woke. Um, and how people shouldn't be so offended all the time and an anti-offence culture. Um, what it is, it's a justification. I know I could talk forever on this. And I need to be quicker. Um, it's a justification to treat people like they are not equal. And um, so I think we're a long way off. I wasn't rushing you. The only thing I was going to interject with was it's just it's 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 funny how quickly people become offended uh, who who are the sort of anti woke brigade when when they are challenged. Uh, it's uh, skin can be rather thin. Um, Alison, uh, your views in relation to the the Basra Kumri ask um, about social work education. I think um, I, I would say that there's some there's some reason to be hopeful. So I think some things are already starting to happen. And I think, um, you know, there, there, 
the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think, you know, the the I was, um, you know, motivated, um, you know, by the Black Lives Matter movement to be one of the co-founders of the Gypsy Roma Traveller Social Work Association. And, you know, one of our one of our sort of primary goals really is to ensure that anti-gypsyism is embedded into social work education and training from the start, you know, all the way through until, you know, the end of, 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 of social work career. And we've been, you know, we've been developing uh, important relationships with, you know, the Joint University Social Work Council on on, on on social work education. Um, we're, we're, we're beginning to have conversations with the regulator in Wales to think about how we embed you know, anti-gypsyism as part of anti-racist um, education and training for, for social workers. So, so I have some optimism in Wales that there are you know, some important levers that we're starting to apply. And also, of course, in Wales, we are in the process of developing a new schools curriculum. And as part of a, a Welsh government commit, commitment to developing an, a, an anti-racist country, as Wales is an anti-racist country, we have the Race Equality Action Plan, which has been developed, and also the new schools curriculum. Part of the new schools curriculum is the teaching of Black, Asian and minority ethnic uh, history and and again we're 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 part of those steering groups and 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 we're ensuring that 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 in, in particularly in relation to um Romney and traveller history in Wales that that it's 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 included and it's represented on the school's curriculum so I, I'm cautiously optimistic I'm cautiously optimistic I have to say uh in in relation to Wales in particular Andy that 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 we can affect some positive change Good. Well, that's really encouraging. And I would be a really bad host if I didn't take this opportunity to plug a previous episode of the podcast. Uh, was it two episodes back? We made an episode on uh, anti-Gypsyism and anti-Romani racism. Alison essentially curated that episode and it featured Dr. Dan Allen from Manchester Metropolitan University and Richard O'Neill. Richard is a storyteller and a playwright. Uh, he's a Romani Gypsy and I could have spoken to Richard for two hours and made an extra long episode. If you haven't listened to it, do uh, take the time. It's, it's really well worth your attention. So now I want to move on to the standout issues from the three manifestos where the recommendations aren't directly mirrored across the countries. And I'm going to start with Scotland. And this point does tie in with the previous issues we've discussed in terms of ethics and values. But I think it's distinct enough to be addressed as a standalone standout point. During the previous mandate, the Scottish government incorporated the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child into domestic law and further plans were made by the government just prior to the election to integrate a further four UN treaties into Scottish law. Now, I'll leave these to, to, for you to explain what they are, Alison, but they're, they're pretty significant, um, particularly the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights in relation to the poverty issues we discussed earlier. Now, you've asked all candidates to commit to these changes. It's exciting that this is on the government's agenda for the new mandate, but what impacts will these changes have for people in Scotland? Um, great great question, Andy, yes. And um, as you say, we have incorporated, and it was unanimous vote in the Scottish Parliament to incorporate the UNCRC into Scottish law. Um, and um, the, the, the bill that will now begin to come through the system um, will introduce um, or, or seek to um, incorporate the rights in the International Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, um, discrimination against women, elimination of forms of racial discrimination and also the Convention on um, the Rights of Persons within, with Disabilities. Okay. Now, I think what's kind of really interesting about particularly the economic, social and cultural rights is um, is this covers things like um, the right of all peoples to self-determination, including the right to freely determine their political status, for example. It looks at um, social security and social insurance, talks about family life, including parental leave, protection of children. Key, um, as we've been talking about poverty, an adequate standard of living, including adequate food, clothing and housing. And and a continuous improvement of living conditions. I have that article yes. in front of me. That's not happened over the last 10 years with government austerity, um, UK-wide. And that's that's what jumped out at me when I was reading that convention, Alison. The, the continuous improvement in living conditions. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, I think, but like, like with UN, UNCRC being incorporated, it will give people just direct 
articulation of some of their rights in a way that makes um, um, legal action potentially possible. You know, and I think that we will begin to see that coming through in the UNCRC, UNCRC when that um, becomes live in October. And is it going to be smooth sailing in terms of implementing those uh, conventions into domestic Scottish law? I, I believe that it's not the most straightforward process, even in, in terms of implementing the UNCRC. Um, well, it's not. And many people may have heard that the UK government has taken the Scottish um, government to court, to the Supreme UK Court, um, in terms of that uh, the allegation is that the Scottish government has overstepped its um, capacity, its remit in terms of incorporating this because some of the, the rights and the way that we've incorporated them um, begin to place a kind of a backwards duty um, onto UK ministers by their very nature. So, um, so I think this is... This is the beginnings of a process, and we'll have to see um, how, how this goes. I think um, it's tricky for the um, UK government to say that um, it would, Scotland would not be allowed to incorporate UNCRC. That may not play well in, in a variety of um, constituencies that you know, would definitely want to promote children's rights. So um, I think it's watch this space and see what happens. Um, but as you can see, what we have between um, the, the discussion around Section 30 independence um, and referendum um, applications, um, you can see that there's quite a potential for um, friction between the Scottish Government and UK Government. Moving on to Wales, Alison Bazakumri called for the creation of the role of chief social worker. And what's different about this recommendation is that the ask is that the new post would enjoy the independence of a commissioner style role, similar to the children's commissioner's role. And my presumption is that this would mark a break from the various chief social worker or uh, chief social work advisor roles in England, Northern Ireland and Scotland, where the post holders are members of the civil service and therefore lack an independent voice to speak up for the profession. Have I understood that that ask correctly? That's our ask, Andy, but I, I, I'm afraid that what we're actually going to end up with is is a civil servant type role. Um, I don't think that Welsh Government is is going to appoint another commissioner type role. Um, And we may end up with a generic chief social care officer and not a, a, a chief social work role. So we've just submitted a consultation around the white paper that that is um, recommending that a, that, that a new office for social care is set up in Welsh government with a with a chief officer, and and again, you know, we're 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 arguing very strongly for a chief social worker role. But at this point in time, I would say I'm I'm I'm, I'm cautious and I'm pessimistic actually that we won't we won't now achieve that. We will have a a chief mm. social care officer role, and it will be a civil servant type role. It's a bold, it's a bold recommendation, and I think it's really a really valuable one, though, to be making on behalf of the profession. I think we have to. I mean, you know, we it, it, it's absolutely you know vital and significant when it comes to uh, you know we spoke earlier about you know how do we, how how do we raise you know the importance of social work and the esteem and the value of social work? Because well, this is one of the ways that you do it, and I think probably we're going to end up with something that we, that that will fall a, a, you know far short of what we want. Kerry, if we move on to England and the standout um, ask from the Baswa England manifesto, um, now last but not least, because this is a big one, Baswa has added its voice to the call for a public inquiry into the government's response to the pandemic and the association also supports the call for a rapid review by COVID-19 bereaved families for justice. This inquiry is vital to make sure the country is prepared um, you know, for any future pandemic. Are you expecting that these inquiries will happen anytime soon or do you expect the government to stall for time? I don't think they'll happen anytime soon. I think the government will say they're doing the job right now so they can't possibly review. And to an extent, they're right, they shouldn't be the ones reviewing. It should be an independent judge-led inquiry, one where the government cannot be responsible for deciding the outcome and whether they acted properly, lawfully. So... I think they'll click it into the long grass for as long as they can. 
and hope that people are just keen to move on after COVID. But that would be foolish in my view, because just just because we may be looking towards the light at the end of the tunnel on COVID is not to say that another virus won't won't enter society. It's not to say that there won't be something else that we need to respond to. And we can't just keep delaying looking into what went wrong and what went right. That needs to be sooner rather than later. And it needs to last quite a substantial amount of time to make sure that everyone's voices are heard. It shouldn't be just down to one grouping of people to, to determine whether the whether the government acted lawfully. It should be hearing from people who have lost people um, from the pandemic to people who are suffering from long COVID. It should be organisations such as BASWA, the most the most vulnerable in society, decision makers. It should be regional, international. It's not just an insular, well, did, did we make the right call? It needs to be wide scoping. And the longer they leave it, the longer it will take. And so I'm not sure we'll ever, we'll ever actually get it. And if we do, I'm not sure it'll be worth the paper it's written on. Thank you, everybody, for you know such insightful comments and contributions. But I've got one final question for everyone. If you were guaranteed one of the manifesto asks would be implemented immediately, which one would you want it to be? And I would say, Andy, that's a very, very unfair question because these asks are so interrelated. Um, so whilst I'm, I'm going to slightly dodge your question, what I will say is deal with poverty. Three of our asks were around poverty, which is about the universal basic income, um, the involving people with lived experience of poverty and rejecting no recourse to public funds. I think um, that is the single most important thing that a government um, should be doing, um, is ensuring greater equality and reducing hardship, um, destitution and marginalisation. When we're talking about poverty, it would be very bad of me if I was anything but generous, Alison. I'll give you those three. And Kerry? Poverty. Absolutely. Um, I think it is the root cause of a lot of, a lot of problems. If you tackle pro- poverty, I think you're, you're at least halfway there. Okay, so same as Salzwa. Alison Humes? I think it would be reform and invest in social care funding because, again, I think that speaks to, it's, it's linked to poverty. And I think, you know, if we, if we had a properly funded, you know, social care system, it would say something about how we, we, we value people, how we respect them, the sort of society that we want to have. It speaks to people having dignity and, and, and agency, um, you know, as, 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 as social workers, you know, you bear witness to the impact of poverty, you know, on, on individuals, on families and communities, and, and, and it, it, it harms us all. So I would, I would, if the only one, it would be reform and invest in social care funding. Thanks, Alison. Thanks, Kerry. And thanks to Alison Babbage in Scotland. Thank you so much for taking the time to take part. I've really appreciated all your input and all your insight. Thanks, Andy. It was really great to speak to you this afternoon. Cheers, Alison, up in Scotland. And bye, Kerry. Cheers, Andy. Uh, great, great to chat with you, Alison and Al. Well, thanks, Andy. Thanks, Kerry. And Al, always good to talk. Um, see you later. Bye.